Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. My name is Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media, LSM. And uh, I am delighted to have another guest in the pod. I'm going to keep you in suspense for a few moments as to who it is. It's a very special very special guest. Uh, it's a beautiful day today. The streets of Riga are swarming with um, uh, tourists. It's good to see, pumping money into the economy, uh, we hope. Uh, the only thing that kind of put a bit of a downer on it for me was uh, seeing uh, a drone up above uh, Dom Square here, buzzing away. I think when I see these drones being flown by hipsters, it's the, the one time when I regret our gun control laws here in in Europe because I'd very much like to um, take care of them. Um, This is the 20th podcast. Can you believe it? So that means we've got 10 hours of this stuff racked up. Uh, If you haven't been through the back catalogue and you do have, uh, well, almost a full day and night to get through, then um, you might want to check them out. But we're going to go back to the future. Uh, It was September last year we did the first podcast and the person who had the nerve, uh, the guts to commit himself, was none other than Downis Hours. And I'm delighted to welcome him back to a slightly darker, slightly less luxurious pod, which tells us something about the way the uh, podcast is heading. Um, Welcome back, Downis. Thanks, Mike. I'm thrilled to be back. I'm also pleased to notice you've uh, changed the format a little bit. I liked this opening monologue, this sort of Alex Jones uh, diatribe <laughs> uh, against the modern world. That Can you just a... pause for a second? I'm going to strike the table. Ah! Okay, that's I better. I enjoyed that a lot. And, and I also have a question. Um, this, uh, you know, I'm going to keep the identity of my guest secret thing. Does that actually work when... My name is plastered, presumably, all over the uh, minutes. minutes I'm not necessarily going to plaster your name all over it. I mean, I might say... In that case, I'm going. Special mystery guest a la Lord Buckethead (laughs) style. Then why why did you take my picture outside? Well, it's amazing what you can do in Photoshop these days, Downey. It's uh, it's quite a a popular program you may have heard of. Um, What should we talk about? I think we should talk about a few different things. Uh, We can can range freely over the the savannah. Um, You were mentioning to me earlier on that you've been looking into demographics. And I know that for the um, CERTUS think tank, which you you do some work for, you produced some quite interesting uh, demographic data uh, a few months ago. So you might give us a little resume of that. But it's been back in the news uh, this week as well. Uh, We had uh, associations of of, uh, Latvia's diaspora taking a, well, we won't call it a booze cruise, but it was a a cruise from Riga to Stockholm and back talking about diaspora type things and uh, maybe how we can get some of the people who are abroad back to Latvia or at least uh, feeling connected to Latvia. Um, What's your take on that? I mean, it's a bit more imaginative than some of the uh, attempts at inclusion, we might say, that that have been uh, tried in the last few years, which often don't amount to much more than founding a working group to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think uh, certainly the ideas were uh, creative and uh, welcome and so on. But to be honest, they missed the point. Um, much as uh, the discussion about re-emigration in Latvia, whether at the political level or at the NGOs or sometimes when you attend conferences on it, they also miss the point. I mean, we know why people leave and we know why they come back. It's Unfortunately, it's all about money. It's all about salary. 
people leave because they can't earn enough money to keep themselves into the, in, in the style in which they would like to live, which is very often, it's not even a particularly extravagant lifestyle, but it just means having some money left over at the end of the month so you can save something or you, you, or you can go out uh, for a meal or something like that, which um, uh, outside of Riga can sometimes be a challenge. And in the same way, um, uh, the people who, who've left, as I say, it's overwhelmingly for economic reasons, the, uh, the reason they will return, and um, there have been numerous pollings of um, the, uh, the, the recent uh, diaspora on this issue. And uh, once they can receive a certain sum of money, which is usually a thousand euros upwards um, after tax, um, then they would consider coming back to Latvia. So really, it's all about the economy. Um, that's what's going to get people back. And um, there's a little bit of a sort of chicken and egg uh, situation there, isn't there, in that, uh, I mean, if, if you're you have to wait until the economy is big enough that people want to come back rather than what seems to happen a bit at the moment, which is, well, you come back and we promise you that will help to improve the economy and then you'll be earning more. Yes, but I mean, I think we can, I mean, we can see an example from uh, Ireland about how this works. I mean, Mike, we're, we're from more or less the same uh, generation. Um, and you probably remember how Ireland was in the 1980s. Um, or in the 1990s, to young men like us growing up in the UK. It was a dark, vaguely terrifying place. Well, um, I went there on holiday. It wasn't that terrifying. <laughs> well, you see, I never went on holiday uh, <laughs> until the 1990s. But, I mean, certainly Ireland wasn't held up as some kind of example of a, mm. of a booming economy. In a sense, it was rather similar to uh, perhaps uh, Ladgale. It was uh, um, uh, overwhelmingly a agriculturally-based um, uh, economy, uh, one of the poorer uh, countries in the European Union. In fact, upon entering the EU in 1973, it was by far the poorest uh, country among the then uh, nine members. And Ireland, Ireland's development, of course, took off in the early 1990s, became the Celtic Tiger. And then in the mid-1990s, we started seeing a return of the diaspora. Ireland, which for not just tens of years, but hundreds of mm. years, had been seen as a country that people leave in search of opportunity. Now it was a country that people return to for opportunity, for salaries. And of course, you know, Irish uh, GDP now is higher than uh, uh, British GDP per capita and so on. And um, during the recent uh, economic blip, although of course it was a little more than a blip in both Ireland and Latvia, Ireland did experience an, uh, a renewed exodus of people, but that stopped very quickly, and Ireland has returned to being a country where uh, both Irish um, uh, first, second, third, even fourth generation people re-immigrate to, and of course also people from other countries, including the UK, Eastern Europe, and so on, go back to. And this was because of economic development. Mm. Um, so, I mean, really the focus in Latvia should be on growing the economy, and uh, if the economy is grown, if salaries increase, then we should see um, a gradual return of migrants. Although you mentioned our Certus research, we modeled this. So we uh, made two projections, one on annual 3% growth up until 2030, the other uh, annual 5% uh, uh, growth. Um, and uh, we looked at um, sal uh, particularly on salary growth and uh, the salaries in Latvia gradually catching up with European salaries, and we used the German average salary as a proxy. Mm -hmm. And according to our projection, um, which is based on the example of uh, Estonia, um, within about three or four years, um, emigration will 
slow down significantly, if not quite come to a stop, but it will slow down significantly because people will be able to, um, you know, uh, have relatively large salaries, hopefully achieve uh, professional objectives and so on by staying in Latvia. Um, and in our projection, we actually don't look at re-emigration. We don't look at the idea of people because of Brexit or because of rising salaries returning to Latvia. We just have this idea that people stop leaving en masse, as is the case in Estonia and has been for quite some years. And should, we should mention that salaries in Estonia are 20% uh, higher than they are in Latvia and Lithuania, mm -hmm. which I think helps to partially explain. And there why. wasn't quite the same level of exodus uh, either, was exactly. there? Exactly. And I think that's because of the higher salary level mm -hmm. um, uh, to a large part. And of course, Finland being just across uh, the water. But so what we actually see is a leveling out in a population of about 1.8 million. And um, we, sh we often talk about migration in Latvia. Um, this is also based on existing levels of migration. So in recent years, we've had in-migration of about 8,000 people a year. And sort of keeping this steady, uh, looking at the economic growth and uh, uh, so on, projecting the economic growth, you know, we think that within three or four years, the population level should level out. Now, the challenge still remains, of course, uh, that the population will be, number one, growing greyer, growing older, mm -hmm. unlike us. And number two, it will also be urbanizing and heavily urbanizing around Riga, specifically yeah. Riga and the Riga region. Um, and this poses challenges uh, to do with funding public services, healthcare, schools, um, and so on. Also maintaining roads, maintaining rail links. I mean, this should be an issue to you as, uh, as one of the rare um, well, I don't know if you're still an international journalist, certainly certainly in quality and style, <laughs> but you've been day, in Latvia yeah. <laughs> so long. And of course, you live in um, uh, a rural, a beautiful yeah. rural area of Latvia. And then, of course, you know, this question will be uh, topical also for you. I mean, where will your kids go uh, to receive their secondary school education? Will the school be close by? Will they have to take a bus? Will they have to live in dorms um, during the week? These yeah. are the kind of issues that come up from this uh, urbanization. Issue. Well, there's a few things I wanted to, to, to develop from what you've been saying there. To take the last of them first regarding urbanization, I was looking at some figures in the week about the proportion of uh, populations in various European countries who live in the capital. And Latvia was way, way ahead of, I think, every anyone, uh, even, you know, Andorra, where I would have expected to be, it was something like 36% of, uh, of Latvian population in Riga. And I mean, that does... Uh, creates certain problems which you've kind of hinted at. Um, and the situation is a little bit different, say, in Estonia and in Lithuania, where they do have, you know, second cities which are maybe a bit better connected to the capital than uh, is the case in, in Latvia with, with Daugav pills. And I think that does pose big questions about it, where, if and when the population flow uh, slows and maybe people come back as well, getting them to go to places other than Riga. You know, but otherwise the whole country becomes a sort of just a hinterland to a metropolis, does it not? Well, yeah, I mean, this, of course, is a issue for policymakers. I mean, there is a hard choice to be made. Uh, will Latvia follow the rather unsuccessful, to be perfectly frank, example of Nordic states and try to essentially force people to live in rural areas, because we shouldn't imagine this is something which is just, just relevant to Latvia. Mm. Um, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, they all have these um, uh, uh, distant areas that is distant from the capital, 
which are hugely underpopulated. The population that live there is primarily grey and also made up of migrants, uh, because uh, migrants, especially uh, refugees, tend to be sent out to these uh, cities where they, you know, lower the average age and they make up the labor force. You know, typically they can find employment because most of the younger people who've grown up there immediately have taken off to um, uh, the capital city or one of the other big cities like, say, Gothenburg or Aarhus in uh, in Denmark. Um, so the Nordic countries with their you know, huge financial resources have been throwing money at this issue and haven't managed to resolve the issue. I mean, in Denmark, this uh, area of uh, underpopulation and underdevelopment is known as a rotten banana. Mm-hmm. And it gets more rotten with every year in terms of people continuing to leave, businesses continuing to leave, and these areas relying more and more on uh, benefits from the central government. And you would have thought that a country like Denmark, I mean, I'm actually quite surprised to learn that, that a country that's that small and has quite high population density compared to, to Latvia certainly has areas which are... Yeah, you know, Copen- <laughs> Copenhagen, Stockholm, they've hugely expanded over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. So, I mean, one issue is whether you, you, you uh, sort of try to manage this decline, in a sense. Or the other approach is to try to seize on it as an opportunity. So, uh, I mean, Riga is, and historically has been, the biggest city in the region. I mean, the Riga that existed uh, more than 100 years ago is fundamentally different to the Riga we had today or we've had for the last hundred years. Um, a, a historian friend of mine in America, Aldis Putz, uh, told me that the biggest change that Riga has experienced was before and after the First World War. Before the First World War, it was an re- obscenely wealthy, thriving metropolis. It's sort of, mm-hmm. I mean, Latvians like their comparisons with other places. We could say sort of New York of uh, Northern Europe, an international city, um, a thriving city, uh, and, and, and so on. Then came the war. Um, uh, money from banks was expropriated to the central uh, uh, government in uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, as we know, factories were dismantled, moved to the Russian mainland, huge population dislocations, and so on. And then come independence, come the end of the uh, First World First World War, and then uh, eventually uh, Latvia emerging as a sovereign state, Riga became the capital city of a small northern uh, uh, European uh, country, um, which was essentially administrative capital. And it had lost the sort of, you know, thriving metropolis nature that it had had uh, prior to then. And so, you know, one possible uh, vision of Latvia's development would be to understand that people do want to live in urban areas, that Riga is the dominant city in the Baltic states. It has all the preconditions needed for it to challenge Stockholm, Mm -hmm. Copenhagen, and so on uh, for sort of, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a base for, you know, big companies in the uh, Nordic region and so on. And maybe Riga should be developed. Now, there are political problems here, of course, because uh, Riga is run by the uh, opposition uh, Harmony Social Democracy um, and likely to be run, run by it for quite some years to come. And Harmony is unlikely to be in uh, government coalition. So there might be some friction there. But, I mean, essentially, there, there are these policy choices that have to be made. And I mean, it is quite interesting. You mentioned Harmony. I mean, we won't dwell on this, but it seems to me as if they've realised that they're not going to be involved in government coalitions, as you said. And they've effectively chosen to send some of their more capable people instead to become mayors of towns, Daugav Pils as well. So they're effectively setting up kind of almost alternative government at the local level, uh, which allows them to 
point to any local achievements as their own and anything that's uh, lacking say, well, this is a, a fault of central government. So I think this is actually feeding into uh, a developing political situation as well. But um, maybe we won't, we won't dwell on that mm-hmm. at the moment. But I should take a pause at this point, but it's, going, it's so interesting. I'm just going to carry on for a little bit more. Um, going back to a couple of other points you made about salary growth and this being important incentive to get people, uh, well, either to stay here or to come back here or to um, also, I guess, to get uh, migrant labour in uh, when, when decent salaries are being offered. We did have rapidly increasing salaries not so long ago, just before the crisis, and they contributed in large part to the crisis. So, Presumably, this salary growth has to be tied to productivity growth as well, does it? Or does that not really matter so much? Well, yes. I mean, (laughs) ideally, of course, it should be. Um, But I think we will see quite rapid salary growth over the next couple of years as, of course, uh, European Union funds finally flow into the system. I mean, they've been delayed for several years now, especially in the uh, building sector, which, of course, was the sort of the foundation of the bubble uh, mm. that we had these uh, uh, eight or nine years ago um, uh, when the Latin economy you know, overheated quite uh, severely. So, I mean, government will have to use the instruments that it has uh, to try to uh, control wage growth. But certainly, I mean, with a booming economy, I mean, a modest level of wage growth would be perfectly fine. Well, if my boss is, is, is listening, I'd certainly be in favour of a little bit of wage growth. Um, and going back to an earlier point you made about this comparison with Ireland, in which there's a lot of um, uh, truth in that, I think. But maybe, maybe one thing that is different is the idea of what constitutes your nationality or your tautiba. It seems to me that Latvians have a much stricter... Uh, interpretation of what a Latvian is than, say, someone of Irish descent, particularly in America. You know, they'll say, I'm American-Irish or Irish-American. They'll feel Irish, even if they've never been to Ireland. Uh, With Latvian, it seems to be a few more hurdles that people have to jump over, maybe, until they're really considered Latvian by other Latvians. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, this is the the, the sort of divide we have in uh, nationalisms in Europe. We have the more open liberal nationalism you find in uh, Western Europe, in France, in the UK, in uh, Ireland, which you mentioned, which is mostly based on um, accepting uh, culture, political institutions, and so on. And pretty much, you know, anybody can become British or French. Um, But to the East, and this includes Germany, uh, so from Germany to the East, there tends to be a rather more restrictive view, which is based on uh, blood, on uh, heritage, um, and so on. Now, this, of course, is changing as the country uh, liberalizes. I mean, after all, we have a new liberal party, uh, which will be registered in the next uh, couple of weeks. Well, presumably liberal, it's not clear, liberal, social democratic, something fuzzy around the yes. center, maybe leftish. This is uh, something called par. Yes, we are four. Four. And it is with an exclamation mark. So I insist that every time it's said, it's said in the way that it's written with an exclamation mark. My heart rushes every time I say it. I don't know why, (laughs) uh, but it does. Um, And and, and they, of course, have have, uh, made some vague uh, declamation about everybody belonging to uh, Latvia, who is here and so on. And that's something which also other political parties over over recent couple of years have been uh, whispering talking about, but certainly not shouting about. So this perception is changing, but um, uh, there, there is a very large group of people who um, uh, oppose this sort of liberal vision, not just in Latvia, but we see it very clearly in Poland with the Polish government. Mm-hmm. We see it in Hungary, we see it in Slovakia, in the Czech Republic, and elsewhere in the region. 
Okay, well, we'll wrap up this half of the uh, uh, podcast at this point, and we'll be back in a few minutes talking about the dread subject. Please don't go away. I'm going to say it, but, you know, don't switch off when I say it. Brexit. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. My name is Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media, uh, LSM. Joining me in the pod, slightly humid pod today, is Downis Hours, a veteran of the podcast. And very well rested after the break, thank you, Mike. <laughs> I hope the oysters met with your approval. We'll find out later. Okay. And... Um, I mentioned the B word just before the break there. You and I both hail from uh, the UK for our sins. I'm reluctant to talk about Brexit just because it's become the most boring subject in the world, the most navel-gazingly self-serving, self-satisfied thing that's imaginable. But let's talk about it in a Latvian context because we were talking (laughs) about um, uh, migration, people coming back and so on. I mean... Uh, there's the uh, positive possibility, is there not, that uh, the 100,000 or so Latvians who are currently in the uh, UK might all get booted out, and that will solve our population problem here at a stroke, won't it? Well, I mean, that's obviously not going to happen. Um, uh, Immigration was the number one, the number two, the number three issue, which drove Brexit. I mean, that's very clear now from all the... uh, 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 post-voting polls that have been made and research and so on. But uh, government has been moderating its approach to this and essentially saying, well, we we will limit people coming in the future, maybe. Um, But those people who are here, especially those people who entered uh, Britain uh, during the European Union membership, and they will essentially have uh, all the same same status uh, that they had if Latvia, uh, sorry, if the UK was in the EU, they will continue to have that status even afterwards. I mean, yeah, I mean, we should mention as well, this is something I've always wanted to say or always wanted to be pointed out every time I read something or hear something about Brexit is uh, everything is based on pure guesswork. Yeah. No one knows what's going to happen. No one has known from the beginning what will happen because uh, the whole thing was kind of a circus. Uh, and so we can take... Everything we say, everything we predict with a large pinch of salt. Except, <laughs> no, I mean, the, I, I think the one thing which is very clear, which some people had mentioned um, after the vote, is that it's going to take a hell of a long time. And that the two years um, of official uh, um, uh, negotiation is not long enough. And I think that's very clear now. If you even have um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK saying, well, you know, we're going to need some extra time uh, for this, then, I mean, this is going to drag on for many, many, many years. Good. Good. Because, I mean, I feel that at this time, (laughs) it's a bit like watching the first three acts of King Lear, I think. And, you know, if you've watched the first three acts, I mean, I am, as you can probably tell, was vehemently anti-Brexit. But I'm gradually almost moving towards being pro-Brexit just because it requires dramatic closure. So you watch the first three acts of King Lear and certain things happen which set up the final cataclysmic tragedy. And if you don't watch the last two acts, you feel that you've been cheated and you've missed some of Shakespeare's best writing. So, so I mean, it's horrible um, to kind of secretly want your country to enter a sort of cataclysmic phase in its history. 
Um, and I'm not saying that's what I want to see, but it's almost as if um, this appetite has to be fed now because we, w- you push things so far and then I think hubris on the one side is stopping people just say, well, look, this is ridiculous. Let's turn around and do something else. Um, but there's also which, this, this um, dramatic structure, which I think is, is, is urging us ever onwards. Now, uh, just one thing for our listeners. Uh, you've just heard the advantage of a grammar school education with, a, with all the uh, talk of King Lear. As a comprehensive boy myself. I, I am actually a comprehensive boy as well, Dionys. Yeah. You know? Oh, I just ruined my Done argument. quite well for Can myself. We that <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad now that, now that we, we, we're both equally chippy. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the Latvian context of Brexit. Um, is it going to make a difference? I mean, it's obviously going to make some sort of difference to businesses. And has it sort of tied Latvia closer into European structures now that it seems that all other, all the other 27 members are now aware that when they talk with the UK, they have to be on message. They have to mm. be saying kind of the same thing. And obviously there will be attempts to divide them or to pull some off, some be a bit you know, cosier than others. But it seems so far, particularly in Latvia's case, actually, I think Foreign Minister Rinkevich has, has uh, made a point of uh, stressing that you know, when we're talking about Brexit now, we're talking on behalf of all 27 members. And that is actually quite an interesting phenomenon, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, Latvia, of course, is very disappointed with the Brexit from a political point of view. Uh, Latvia has been very closely aligned uh, to the UK in numerous policy areas um, uh, in the EU. And they're losing this sort of powerful uh, liberal voice, especially when it comes to um, uh, economic uh, issues. But in a sense, I think Latvia and the Latvian government, I should say, has been almost a little bit too sensitive about all this. I mean, Mm -hmm. we could talk about the European Medicines Agency um, issue, uh, for example, which has been a bit of a hobby horse of mine for the last six months. So uh, on the 1st of August, um, applications for cities to host the European Medicines Agency, this huge, sprawling 800-plus member agency, which takes up a huge building in the Docklands um, uh, in London, and which has to be relocated as a result of uh, Brexit. And it brings all kinds of added benefits uh, to the local economy, not just the international staff, of course, who are renting or buying uh, real estate, putting their children in international schools, dining in the finest restaurants, and so on, but also it has a huge spillover effect into uh, universities, research facilities, and also pharmaceutical companies, which carry out much of the testing and uh, provide the expertise for all this. Now, Latvia is the only Baltic state that actually has a pharmaceuticals cluster. Um, It has a number of uh, companies. Um, It has a uh, research facility. It has a medical university, which is increasingly internationalized and so on. And then uh, the Latvian government took the decision to... ah, we're not going to compete to have the EMA hosted here. So together with um, a couple of other countries, including Estonia and Lithuania, basically these are the countries that have no pharma industry whatsoever, it ruled itself out of Mm. the running. And I thought that was a little premature. I mean, I think there were, of course, it was unlikely for Latvia to win the EMA, but it could have made deals, it could Mm -hmm. have bartered, um, it could have, I mean, the favorites are, from what I gather, Copenhagen and Stockholm, which are, of course, you know, located very close. You know, we could have made some kind of deal to do some of the tests and so on in the facilities here. But by not taking part, essentially all leverage has been, um, has been uh, uh, bartered away. And I think that was a little, little bit short-sighted. And as I understand it, there was some worry about sort of, you know, dancing over the, the bones in the grave hmm. of uh, Britain as, as it uh, leaves uh, the European Union. 
But, I mean, no other countries are concerned by this. And I think the British also understand that, you know, the decision to leave has certain consequences. And one of them is that you lose these European yeah. Union institutions. So, in a sense, I wish that uh, the government could have been a little bit more confident and a little bit more foresighted and understood that this kind of uh, issue is is very separate from from political issues. These are basically administrative issues, not political issues. Yeah, and to do it in a quiet way as well is is maybe oversensitive. In that it, you could have made a virtue out of it if you decided not to uh, not to participate. Mm-hmm. To say, well, look, we're going to save taxpayers the money of bidding, or we're going to buddy up with such and such another country and, you know, develop our relationship by backing them on this. I should uh, mention, actually, that at LSM on our uh, Twitter feed, we received um, uh, top marks to Italy. They they sent us a message saying, we're relying on Latvian support for the um, uh, medicines agency. So they got in there early, and I was very happy to retweet that um, just because they noticed us, you know. Um, so if any other countries want LSM's powerful backing... <laughs> Um, then as we're all EU members together, I'll be happy to retweet those as well. I I think it's quite clear that Brexit will take place. What the relationship will look like, we have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. But Brexit, in terms of the UK leaving the European Union, I mean, I think that's an unstoppable process. Yeah, I think it probably is. And I I want to Probably, you say? uh, Well, look, I believe in unexpected things. Who knows? Some vast plague descends uh, and suddenly, you know, Brexit's not so important. It could be anything like that, or, couldn't or it? Trump and North Korea. Uh, yes, two fat men sticking their tongues out at each other could be. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could happen. But, I mean, I'll, I'll be glad when it's over one way or the other, um, the same way you're kind of glad when a terminal illness is, is, is over and done with. Because I actually have come to resent having to think about it for like more than a year now, you know, 18 months or whatever it is, and every day there's something else. And I really resent the amount of psychic energy this is taking up. It's quite wearing, and I found myself getting, you know, bad-tempered and so on because Mm. I'm just uh, uh, feeling low-level anger constantly about this sort of nonsense which is happening. Uh, Anyway... Let's let's finish on a low note, shall we? <laughs> um, we our time is up. We've rambled on. Um, thank you for screwing your courage to the sticking place. Make another Shakespearean reference. Uh, they didn't teach us that in Corby. Returning, returning. They did in Gloucester. Um, <laughs> well, there you have it. I'll be back again in another couple of weeks, probably when I've calmed down a bit. Uh, I'm off to watch a few Alex Jones motivational videos, maybe buy a few of his products. I think that should definitely be a thing. You should have a little introduction, a sort of two-minute monologue. We need to monetize this. We desperately need to monetize this. Thank you for joining me, Dionys. Thanks for having um, me. Let's go and get a beer. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Produced by Renar Steymans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at www.lsm.lv.